So chapter 13. Now David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister, Tamar, which automatically tells you something bad is going to happen, as in the Bathsheba story. In the course of time, David's son, Amnon, fell madly in love with her. But Amnon became frustrated because he was so lovesick over his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and to Amnon it seemed out of the question to do anything to her. Now, let's set the family dynamics up. David has multiple wives. Their firstborn son is Absalom. He is from one wife. Then there is a second-born son by the name of Kiliab, who is, doesn't appear anymore in the story other than his birth, which means he probably died young somewhere. The third-born son, who is now technically the second-born son, is Amnon. Amnon is born to a different wife. So you've got Absalom and Amnon. They're born to different mothers, so they're half-brothers. Absalom also has a sister by the name of Tamar who is born to the same father, David, and the same mother as Absalom. So Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded brother and sister from same dad, same mother. Absalom and Tamar, in their relationship to Abnon, are same father, different mothers, half-brothers, half-sisters. And that's important to understand as we go into the story. So Abnon has fallen madly in love, or lust, with his half-sister. According to the law, it doesn't matter whether you're halvesies or quarteries or sixteenies, that is wrong. It is a total violation of the law to have any kind of sexual relations with any kind of sister in any kind of relation that you can possibly imagine. So immediately right off the bat, we're told that Abnon's desire is a violation of the law. If he crucifies that desire, then kudos to him and his godliness. If he acts upon it, then we're in trouble, which we know he will act upon it. Now he's become so in love with her to the point that he's sick. And basically all he can do is think about her, and the idea is not that he's got the flu or the stomach bug kind of sick, but it's that constant infatuation and thinking about somebody all the time, constantly. And not everybody has experienced this kind of stuff. I've never, ever experienced that kind of infatuation that's led me to that. But that's because I have a certain kind of a personality. I've known people who, where you get so worried and you get so stressful, and it could be anything, love and you can't be with them, or taxes or bills or to-do lists or worrying about family relationships that it ends up causing physical problems, ulcers, stress, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. So whatever thing is, he so wants to be with her so badly, but he can't be with her for whatever reason stopping him, and he can't stop thinking about her. It's causing him so much stress and anxiety that it's actually creating a physical illness in him. And so it really just paints, you're screwed up. <laughs> you need therapy. And I don't mean he's like screwed up. Well, he actually is, as we keep reading, but... Um, there's something seriously not right here that needs to be dealt with. So you get counsel. So Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now what's interesting here is that that word crafty is just the word wise. It's been used of the serpent, it's used of Jesus, it's used of lots of people. So it basically just means that he's wise. But he's Jonadab is his friend, but it's also his cousin. 
And so Jonadab is going to give him great advice. He asks Abnon, why are you, the king's son, so depressed every morning? Can't you tell me? So Abnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Now this is the best mental gymnastics I've ever seen. I'm not in love with my sister. I'm in love with my brother's sister. <laughs> now why does he say that? Because he's hoping mentally he can remove her as physically, relationally far from him as he possibly can. But in the end, it's still your sister, dude. Like, seriously, get over it. So Jonadab says, lie down. Pretend you're sick because you are in the head and the body. And when your father comes in to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come in so that she can fix some food for me. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I can watch, and then I will eat from her hand. Now, by her hand, we don't mean like he's going to come up and I like some little pet and eat her hand. It means that she's going to personally serve him. Like, my students always had this image like, they're like, ew, that's so weird. I'm like, that's not what it means. Okay? The mind of a young child. So um, they always come up with the weirdest ways of picturing these stories sometimes. That's his advice. Pretend you're sick so you can like seduce her into sleeping with you. There's a new theme that's going to pop up in this story now. And that's the wisdom of man. The minute that David thought it was a good idea to take Bathsheba, it's introduced the idea that David's house is full of corrupt wisdom. And you need to understand something. The Bible calls us all wisdom. But that doesn't mean wisdom is always godly and used for godly purposes. The serpent was wise, more wise than any of the other animals that God had created. Yet he used the wisdom to destroy all creation practically. Hitler was incredibly wise and discerning. Lots of people were wise. You can use wisdom in corrupt ways just like you can use every good gift of God. Mercy, love, sex, language, Everything can be used to manipulate people and get what you want if you were that good at corrupting things. And so we're going to introduce a new theme. Well, I'm not. The Bible is introducing a new theme that all this wisdom in God's house, no, I'm sorry. All this wisdom in David's house is pretty corrupt. It's all wisdom. It's discerning. I mean, this is crafty. This is a good plan. This This will get you what you want. But it's being used for selfish purposes. And you understand that anytime somebody starts giving advice from this point on, the red flag should be going up. So Abnon lay down, pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Abnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come in so that she can get, make a couple of cakes. In my sight, cake is another word for a loaf of bread. I'm not talking about birthday cakes. Then I'll eat from her hand. So David sent Tamar to the house saying, please go to the house. And Abnon, your brother, prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of Nan, her brother, who was lying down, and she took the dough, kneaded it, made some cakes while he watched, and he baked them. But when she took the pan and set it before him, he refused to eat. Instead, Amnon said, get everyone out of here. So everyone left. Now here's an interesting thing that has changed. With David and Bathsheba, it was boom, 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 story over with. Very little detail. Now you're like, Okay, do we really need to know that she kneaded the dough and laid it out and put it in the pan? Like, this is a lot of really extra details. Why? 
because the narrator's trying to show you just absolute disregard for everything sent, 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 abuse of power in the first one. Here, the narrator's building the anticipation, leading it out. <coughs> and by this case, what the narrator's trying to show you is manipulation. And so he's building the suspense. Will Abnon do this? What is going to happen? Abnon is manipulating. He's playing her. Before it was David Want, he took it, he sent it away. Now we have a man who's crafty, he's manipulating, he's, he's playing this out the way that he wants, and the narrator's using a different tactic of storytelling to communicate a different character Amnon, of Amnon's part. Verse 9, But when she took the pan and set it before him, he refused to eat. Instead, Amnon said, Get everyone out of here. So everyone left, by the servants, he means. Verse 10, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the cakes into the bedroom, then I'll eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes that she had prepared and brought them to her brother Amnon into the bedroom. And as she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her forcibly and said to her, Come on, get in bed with me, my sister. I want to have sex with you. But she said to him, No, my brother, don't humiliate me. This just isn't done in Israel. Don't do this foolish thing. How could I ever be rid of my humiliation? And you would be considered one of the fools in Israel. Just speak to the king, for he will, do not, will not withhold you from me. Now, this is the good wisdom. Not every time somebody speaks is it going to be bad wisdom, but most of the time it is. But the, she as the woman, now remember in the book of Judges, the men were all failing, but then it begins to show the women as the unconventional weapons that God begins to use because the men aren't doing what they're supposed to. In the same way, the man who's supposed to be the leader, the man who's supposed to be protecting his sister and valuing her is now completely corrupt, and yet the vulnerable, weak-seemingly woman is the one who's exercising greater wisdom than the corrupt man. And in this, her wisdom is, no, you will humiliate me and ruin me forever in Israel. And two, you will become a fool in everybody's eyes in Israel. This may seem like a good thing that you want that will make your life better, but it will ultimately end destroy both of us. And the word fool is one of the harshest statements that God has for anybody in the Bible. The fool lives as if there is no God. Now I know Proverbs says the fool says there is no God, but that's not what it really means. Nobody believes, nobody is an atheist in the ancient world. What it means is the fool lives without regard of God and his moral standards. He lives as if there's no consequences or God's opinion doesn't matter. And it's one of the harshest terms. And the word fool was used as Saul, and it was used as Nabal. And now it's being used of Amnon. And so Amnon has become another Saul, another Nabal. And he's going to become a fool. And this is a harsh statement. Now, notice that she hasn't called him a fool. She's warning him that he will be a fool if he takes action upon this. Now, the other thing is she says, tell the king and he will not withhold me from you. And basically what she's saying is this must be done right. Now, we don't know. This is forbidden by the law. But David's doing a lot of things that are forbidden by the law, like collecting money and wives and all that kind of stuff. So it could be that they've just fallen into the cultural custom that the king has no problem marrying his own children together. And she's saying, 
okay, I don't really want to be with you and I don't really want this to happen, but I'd much rather be officially married to you by dad in public and be done the right way than for us to be ruined and humiliated in this kind of way. Or it could be that there's no way David ever would do that because he is obeying that part of the law and she's just saying it to get him to stop and then, and then she would have the protection of her dad and brothers and other people to protect her later when it finds out, no, we're not actually going to do this, but my goodness, dude, I we're just trying to stop you. So we don't know exactly if that's true statement or not, but we do know it's definitely a please stop. This is the wrong way to do it. It's, and yes, it's wrong for us to marry either each other, but this is way more wrong than even that. And that's her argument. But he overpowered her. He refused to listen, overpowered her, and he humiliated her when he raped her. Then Amnon greatly despised her. In fact, he disdained her more than he had ever loved her and ever felt before her. Amnon said to her, get up and leave. But she said to him, no, I won't. For sending me away now would be even worse what you did to me earlier. But he refused to listen to her. He called a personnel attendant, personal attendant into him and said, Take this woman. No, it's not my sister I'm in love with, but this woman. Throw her out of my sight and lock the door behind her. Now she was wearing a long robe. There's that robe again. The robe marked her as a virgin, just like um, some girls wear a pure purity ring in our culture. There's something about the robe that marked her as a marriageable aged woman. The king's virgin daughters used to wear. So Abnon's attendants removed her, bolted the door behind her, and Tamar put on ashes on her head and tore the long robe and she was wearing. And she put her hands on her head and went on her way, wailing as she went. This is an absolute horrific, depressing scene. Now here's the thing. Within seconds... He went from total lust and passion and infatuation for her. And then when he got what he wanted, it became the complete disdain and hatred for her. How did he change so drastically and why? And it's because it's a fantasy. Be careful of your fantasies. And I don't mean just sexual fantasies. I mean any fantasy. A fantasy of the job that you'll have one day. The fantasy of what your family will be like one day. The fantasy of your marriage. The, the fantasy of how much money you have. That, that retirement home that you want. Right? We all have dreams. And, and, and sometimes dreams and goals are good, but sometimes they can cross into obsessions and idols. And here's the thing. You know when you're a little kid, you were either one or the other person in your family. You're either the kid, like, so you and your brothers and sisters or cousins, you would get together and you would play act something. Pretend that we're fighting bad guys or pretend that we're playing house or all this. My girls, it's everything. Bad guys, good guys, house, all that kind of stuff, cooking food. So let's pretend this. And they pretend. And there's always one person who's more dominant than everybody else. And they have already pre-written a script for everything that will happen. It was either you or your sister. And, and usually in play acting, it's usually the older sister, not the boy. I mean, not the boys can't, but it typically is the, the girl who's more in the script writing. They had this idea, and it's pre-written. And everybody already has a role that they have to play. 
And if they don't play the script right, then, oh, hell hath no greater fury. <laughs> it's, it's, it, they get angry, and they either like just start plowing into people and saying, you're not doing it right, you're messing up. Or they're like, I'm not doing this anymore, and they stomp off. Because if I can't have this script my way, we're not doing this at all. There's always somebody in the relationship that's like that. Now, here's the thing. They have a fantasy of what's supposed to happen. And everything in their fantasy is perfect. But life doesn't work that way. We live in a world of chaos and fallenness and brokenness and suffering and trials. And, and, and there's nobody who can meet that script exactly the way that they want it. This is why directors are sometimes dictators. And when you're paying people, they're more likely to do what you want. Um, but they can't meet that out, let alone when they don't even know the script half the time. That's like the, the, the miserable part of it all for everybody else in the family. They don't even know what the script is. Here's the thing. You're going to fantasize different times in your life about that job that you want or what you thought your husband or wife would have been or what you thought your future marriage would be like or your family or your kids or your job promotion or the house or your retirement. I thought retirement was going to be like this. I had this dream of retirement and all this kind of stuff. And the reality is we always fantasize a perfect utopian scenario. Everything always goes exactly the way that we want it. If your fantasies don't work that way, then you, you've got some weird fantasies. Okay? I mean, th there's nothing wrong with that. Those are hopes and dreams. And nobody hopes for suffering and disappointment. But if you hope and dwell and fantasize too much, then it becomes an obsession. And it becomes an idol. And then what happens is that will never, ever, ever become what you want it to be. There is no scenario in this fallen, broken world where you're going to have the job that you've always dreamed of and imagined. You're going to have the really, even if your marriage is great, your spouse is not going to be what you have imagined, that perfect knight in shining armor or whatever. The retirement is never going to be as glorious as what you've imagined it. And if it's just a hope and a dream, then you're disappointed and you adjust. But it's a fantasy that you've invested a lot of time and a lot of emotion, a lot of energy into, then typically what happens is you get bitter. And it's always somebody else's fault. It's my, my boss. He's the one that does not recognize my potential. I could be much higher up in the position. I could be doing a better job than all these other people, but it's because of him. He doesn't recognize it. If, it was, if we could just get rid of him, this would be a better dream job. As my husband's fault, it's my wife's fault. If they would just get in line and understand that this is what our marriage is supposed to be. It's my kid's fault. Oh, it's, it's never my parenting. It's always the other spouse's parenting. If these are your kids. Okay? Well, it's just like, oh, it's a condo association down in Florida from my retirement home. They're just jacking this all up. If we could just get rid of that person running that condo association, this would be the retirement place that I had imagined, right? And, and, and you either just roll with the punches because that's your character and you realize life is life, or you become the person that idolizes your fantasy so much that you become bitter. 
A lot of celebrities are like this. They envision being a celebrity and famous would get them everything. And when they're still unhappy being famous people, it's amazing how many celebrities are hateful, bitter people who treat everybody like crap. Businessmen, very powerful CEO people. And not every people who are in power are bad people, but there's a lot of people there because they have everything and their life isn't perfect. And they're bitter. And you have to be really careful about dreams, goals, and desires versus fantasies and expectations. Because you will be disappointed. And I don't know what percentage of disappointment you will be, but in a fallen world, there's going to be some percentage. And you can either accept it for what it is, and God is good and he'll take care of you, or you can become bitter. And it's always somebody else's fault because they ruined your script. And in his fantasy, she always complied. And she always was on board with him. And now that script isn't happening in real life. And it's not his false fantasy. It's her fault. She ruined it. And all people who are that get everything that they've wanted and are bitter are still little kids who are angry at everybody else because they're not playing out their play right. And that's how he goes from intense passion to hatred and a heartbeat. Be careful of your fantasies. Dreaming is okay. Goals and desires are okay. But do not make them utopian, idealistic expectations. Because you will, and some of you might have already felt that, at different times in your life. We've all thought that life was going to be different in some kind of a way. And we're all old enough now that we realize life hasn't exactly turned out the way that we had thought when we were younger. And you can either say, but in the end, God is still with me and he's good. And I've seen how God has used that despite all that. Or you can just become bitter. And I think that's an important point in this Bible because this is what everybody is doing so far. Everybody is setting up. This is about power. This is about what I want. And every single time somebody is grabbing for what they want, it's always destroying them. From the very beginning in the garden, to David and Bathsheba, to Abnon with his sister, when you grab that and say, I want it, it usually ends up destroying you. And this is why God comes to Cain and says, be careful, sin is crouching at your door, ready to strike. And remember, they wanted a king, and God gave him exactly that, and it destroyed them. So cast her out. Now she is ruined. Her brother Absalom, verse 20, said to her, Was Abnon your brother with you? They live in the palace. It's more like an apartment complex. Many rooms, many people living there. David has lots of wives, lots of sons. There are lots of servants. I mean, just in this story, Abnon sent servants out of his room. There are soldiers, there are bodyguards, there are attendants, there are scribes, there are servants, there are tons of people in the palace. And Absalom sees her coming down the hallway, raped, as evidence from her robe being ripped and crying and weeping ashes on her head. And the first thought that comes to his mind is, Abnon. Why? Because he already knows what Abnon's like. And he already knows that Abnon's lusting. 
I mean, in school, like, I'm usually the last person to know what's going on in most kids' lives in school because I'm just, like, don't care about being tapped into the grapevine in any kind of way. And I think everybody mentioned this before, and the grapevine's going to change within a couple of days anyway, so what's the point in wasting energy on that knowledge? And it's never been my personality to begin with in that kind of sense. I mean, I've got tons of other weaknesses, but that one was not But same, same time, it does not take but five seconds to walk through the lunchroom and figure out who's lusting after who. Okay? <laughs> When you're dealing with young teenagers with raging hormones, you can just see them staring across the cafeteria at people. And it doesn't take a, I mean, I'm very observant people. You just look around and you know who's interested in who. And you know who's not with who and wants to be with who pretty quickly just by how long they stare at people. These are brothers and sisters. It has not taken a rocket scientist to figure out that his lust is not hidden. I mean, he's beginning sick from it. That throws you back to the beginning where it says, why didn't David see that? All of a sudden, you're now saying, David put him alone. In the room with Amnon. If Absalom, immediate thought is Abnon. Then why couldn't David see that? Now, I know that as a parent, there's no way I'm going to know everything that's going on in my daughter's lives as they get older. I mean, right now it's easy. Their life is literally right there. But I know as they get older and out, like, but at the same time, I would hope that I would have figured that, that powerful of a lust that's making my kids sick. Like, that's, you got to be really blind to miss that one. I mean, I know your kids probably had crushes on people and you didn't know it because it's just a crush. But if your kid is so infatuated to the point that they're physically ill, that, that should be somewhat noticeable, right? That Ab- Absalom figured it out. Other people have probably figured it out. Jonadab actually took the time to ask him. David didn't. And what you're beginning to see is, we're going to see this. David is a passive father. And here's the thing. When you have that many kids, there's no way you can be a good father like that. It is hard enough to be a good father to three girls. Like, I feel so overwhelmed and keeping up with everything. And, like, and, and wanting to spend quality time with them is so hard to spend quality time and make every girl feel like they're totally loved and their cup is completely filled up when I only have so much time in my life. Working and bills and all that kind of stuff. And the minute you pour into one girl, the other ones are like, well, I want time too. Okay? In fact, spending time with one girl just makes the other ones even more needy. I can't imagine being a good father to 70, 80 kids. And you're, and on top of that, it's like, as the President of the United States of America, you know you have even less time with your kids. As the king of a nation, you have even less time as a parent to kids. And the idea is that you're going to get a picture. This is the beginning. Right now you can't get this from this verse. But we're going to see a pattern develop. And the pattern is David is always the last one to know anything. And he's always incredibly passive in the way that he deals with everything. And you're going to get the sense that he's that workaholic father who spends more time running a kingdom than he has with his kids. And even if he tried, that's one of the disadvantages of collecting wives and having lots of kids. There's not enough time in the day. Even if he was a stay-at-home dad homeschooling them, there would not be enough time to really pour into that many kids. 
And you're going to get the sense that he has become this great king over the nation. But he's a horrible, disengaged father. And one of two things usually happen with fathers like that. They either feel like they have no right to discipline this kid because they know they're not involved in their kids' lives. And they feel guilty to discipline their kids. Or they've tried to discipline the kids, throwing it back at them. Now you show up in my life. And then they realize that they can't do that anymore. Or they are so disengaged from their kids, they don't even know how to discipline them, where to even begin. Because they're so out of touch, they don't even know what actually works with this kid or how to even meet that kid's heart to discipline them. And I don't mean punish them, but discipline them. And then they tend to make up with it by just throwing stuff at them. Wealth, entertainment, privileges. And then they justify their absence by, I'm providing a life for them that I never had when I was a kid. And that usually was what happens with fathers, especially, in those kind of scenarios. And that's what you're going to see, because later we're going to be told, not once did David ever rebuke his sons. That's a bad parent right there. Incredibly powerful kids with lots of wealth, an absent father, and never rebuked. This is a horrible scenario. And then you wonder why Abnon sees what he wants and he takes what he wants. And he doesn't think there's going to be any consequences 